So we are coming to a close in our series called Shadows, and I'm kind of mourning the loss of this series. We've got a couple weeks left. So what we're saying is that anytime you see a shadow, anytime you see a shadow, it is proof that there is light. And what we're doing is we're saying each week we're looking at the proofs or the shadows that prove that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And this week, the shadow or the proof is something that we have done to our hearts. We have done something to our hearts. The great problem, and here's what it is, the great problem for humanity, if we were going to say, here's the root of the problem of us, it is this. There is something in the deep chambers of our hearts that we have suppressed. We have locked the door to the deep chambers of our hearts that long for something that is eternal, long for something that is ancient, and it's a longing for a rescuing God king. And we've locked up those desires deep in the chamber of our heart. That's the great problem for humanity. We're suppressing that. The great Christian story, the story of God coming into the world, giving his life for us and rising from the grave, we're all suppressing it to a degree. And what we're going to do today, and our text is going to show us what that does to us, what that does to our lives when we're suppressing that truth. And we're also going to look at what it does to how we see Jesus, what we make him out to be because we've suppressed that truth. But ultimately, we're going to see in the end how we unlock that key, how we unlock the door in the deep chambers of our heart. So we are in John, and we're going to read verses 1. We're in John 7. We're going to read verses 1 through 31. So this is the most we've ever read before on a Sunday, 31 verses. Okay, so get ready. You're going to have to be patient, and you're going to have to stay focused, okay? Are you ready for that? You don't sound ready. Okay, here we go. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time's always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to this feast, for my time has not yet come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, and they were saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he's a good man, others said, no, he's leading people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning? He has never studied. So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. 
You guys doing okay? 12 more verses. Here we go. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem said, therefore, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? You did it. 31 verses. I will clap. You can clap for yourself. Good job. I'm so proud of you. This, by the way, this side is clapping and this side is not. I don't know why that is. There you go. Okay. All right. Either Christianity is true or it isn't. But it can't be halfway true. Either Jesus really is God, come into the world, give his life for us on the cross, and rise from the grave, or none of it's true at all. But if it is true and we don't believe it, or if it's true and we don't live like we believe it, then it means that we are suppressing that truth. So we see Jesus' own brothers did not believe that he is God. Now, how is that? I mean, don't you think if God came into the world and he was living in your house, don't you think you would be like, hey, there's really something different about this guy. This, I think this is God here. How did they miss it? Part of the reason is because he's laid his glory down, but the, other, the real reason is because they suppressed the truth that God was living in their house. Now, we know this because James, John's brother, eventually did come to believe, and he was one of the great movement leaders, but at first, he suppressed this truth. And we all do the same, and we see in this text it happened over and over and over again. People aren't sure what to make of Jesus. He's right in front of them, and they disbelieve. They call him crazy, they mock him, and they even want to kill him. Now, let me give you an example of how we are suppressing truth. One of the hardest things for people to believe is the virgin birth. That somehow, through some crazy God miracle science, the Holy Spirit impregnates Mary with Jesus, the Son of God. And we hear that, and we're like, this is weird, this is strange, what are these Christians believing? That is the strangest thing I've ever heard. Okay, hold on though. So in the movie Star Wars, I told you, I told you I'm in a Star Wars kick, so you're going to have to be patient with me. So in the movie Star Wars, there's this great prophecy 
that, that there's going to be someone born of a virgin. Now, I got to tell you, this is one of the greatest movies of our time. Some of you don't believe that, but it's true. And, and we hear that in the story, and it captures our imagination. Why? Why does that capture our imagination? Because it is tapping into part of the divine story that is deep in the deep depths of our heart that we long for it to be true. The great stories, the ones that you really love, the stories about rescue, the reason you love them is because they are just shadows of the great divine story that is in the depths of your heart that your heart knows to be true, but you're suppressing it. We can allow Star Wars to capture our imagination, but when it comes to this being real for us, we say, it sounds too good to be true. This couldn't be real for us. We don't allow ourselves to be swept up into the story. And the great tragedy of humanity is that we are suppressing what our hearts know to be true. Now, what does this do to us? If this is really true and we are suppressing it, what does that do to us? The, the story of Christianity is a story of rescue, but if we are suppressing the fact that there is rescue for us, here's what, it ha here's what happens to us. Every single one of you, you have wounds in your life. You have emotional wounds. Every one of you. Even Father's Day, yes, even you, you have, you have wounds. And you actually, probably men, suppress them the most. However, we all have these wounds. Maybe something happened to us when we were young. Maybe something happened to us recently, but we're hurting and we're in pain and we need a rescuer. And if we don't have a God who has come to heal us, here's what we do with those wounds. We suppress them. We go into survival mode. We have these survival mechanisms so that we will not let those wounds control us. Only here's the problem. They're still controlling you. Because when you see somebody walking down the road that hurt you, you relive it all, all over again. When, when you see, you're watching TV and something reminds you of something that has happened to you, you relive it all over again. You are still being controlled by your wounds no matter how much you're suppressing them. Take a broken heart, for example. So whether you got your heart broken by someone, a spouse, significant other, a friend, you go into survival mode, and here's what you do to your heart. You start protecting it. Instead of letting, I mean, to love is to be vulnerable, so you stop loving in order to protect your heart. You lock up your heart. C.S. Lewis explains what happens. It's a perfect example. He's going to say it way better than me, so here you go. Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully, round with your hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, your heart will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, and irredeemable. If you suppress love within you to protect yourself, you end up losing yourself. 
the great love of Christ coming into the world for us is the only thing that will heal your broken heart. And we long for that reality of Christ to come and do that, but we suppress it. And therefore, we're forced to suppress love for others to protect ourselves. Love is risky. Anytime you love someone, you're taking a risk. And unless you have a sure love that is from Christ, you will never take the risk to love like you are meant to love. But if you do have that sure love, you could take the risk of loving anybody, even your enemies. We also, here's what we also do. We suppress the mistakes that we have made. I have mistakes in my life that I am constantly trying to suppress. I don't like thinking about them. And when I think about them, it gives me that gross feeling inside. You guys know what I'm talking about. So what we do is we suppress them because we don't really think that we're forgiven. We don't really think that we have a God who's coming to the world to give his life for us on the cross in order to forgive us. And so we think we're not forgiven. If we are really, really forgiven, we can stare our failures and our mistakes in the face and they have no control over us. They have no say over us if we really believe the story is true. But again, we suppress it. Or if we're trying to suppress something and it's not working, we try to depress it. So alcohol. Alcohol is a depressant doesn't mean it makes you emotionally depressed. It means it depresses your reality. And so we use alcohol to depress our reality where we have wounds, we have broken hearts, we have whatever it is. We start relying on it to relax, to have fun, to forget. Or embarrassing things. So um, one, I, I think I was in middle school, maybe high school. So I'm sitting in my desk and there's this very, very, very sweet girl sitting in front of me. And she sneezed. And this is an embarrassing story for me. It's kind of for her. So um, so she sneezed. And, you know, like when you sneeze, you kind of like lose control a little bit. So <laughs> some of you are going to make me say this. So she sneezed and then she farted. <laughs> and it was loud. And it was very, very funny, and I'm trying really hard not to laugh, and I felt so bad, and I laughed. Um, my guess is that to this day, she's trying to suppress this reality. Um, but listen, if Christ, I'm telling you, if Christianity is true, if, if what it says about you and your future is true, you can learn to laugh at the embarrassing things that you do, because you know what? You have absolutely all of the approval you need in Jesus Christ. He's done, accomplished everything for you, so you can learn to laugh at yourself if you believe that story is true. But again, we suppress it. Um, death. And you know we do that, you know we do this with death. We pretend like death isn't a problem for us. The great enemy of humanity is death, yet we don't even really think about it or talk about it at all. Why? Because it scares us, because we're, we are surprised we want to suppress death because we don't think we're really free from it. If Christianity is true and we're not suppressing it, then death is simply only something we pass through in order to have our eternal life with God. It's not something to be feared if we think it's true. But again, we suppress this reality. So are you suppressing 
what your heart knows to be true. And not only, you know, when we're suppressing this Christian story, not only does it affect our lives, our lives, but also it affects how we see Jesus. It affects what we make of him. So we're seeing in our text that everybody's trying to figure out what to make of Jesus. Who is he? What's the, what is he doing here? What is going on with him? And he keeps telling you, this is what to make of me. And he keeps telling them, this is why I'm here. He's telling the whole world, yet nobody still knows what to do about him. No one knows what to make of, make of him. And so here's some of the stuff they say. So they're trying to figure out what to do about him. They say, he's leading people astray. Now listen, if you're suppressing this reality about him, you're going to start saying things about him that don't make a lot of sense. So he says, so people say, he's leading people astray. Jesus' teaching, when taken root, produces flourishing. It produces love. I mean, we're talking about people who are even loving their enemies, it produces peace, so it doesn't really make sense at all to say that his teaching is leading people astray if it's producing flourishing over and over and over anywhere it takes root. So that doesn't make any sense. Some people say that he is a good man and a marvelous teacher. This is very common for people to say about Jesus today. Here's the problem with Jesus being a good man or a marvelous teacher. He is claimed to be God. A good man doesn't claim to be God if he is not. I don't know anybody who would say, yeah, my friend over there, he's a great guy. He's claiming to be God, but he's really a good guy. Just you got to get to know him. Nobody says that. The other thing, here's the other thing. They call him a crazy demon-possessed man. That doesn't line up with how he lives. Look at the way he's loving people, people who, who have wounds. He goes to them. He's, he's healing them emotionally. He's also healing them like physically, and he's doing it in the name of God. You don't heal people in the name of God if you're a demon-possessed man. So that doesn't make any sense either. And this is what we do today. We talk about Jesus, and the consensus seems to be this is what we'll say today. The consensus seems to be that he didn't want anyone to claim him to be God, but the disciples said that about him. The disciples, in a sense, made it up about him. Now, here's the problem with that theory. Every single disciple died saying that he is risen from the grave. Nobody dies for a lie, especially all of his disciples. All of his disciples were, were tortured to death, standing there saying, Jesus is the Son of God risen from the grave. If you're making that up, and you're about, I mean, they, they went to the cross, they went to a cross just like Jesus. If you're staring at that cross, you're going to say, I was just joking. That wasn't real. I'm going to get out of here, okay? But none of them did it. They stood their ground and said, this is true. And you say, okay, well, David, I've still got you. How can we trust the Bible? How can we trust that this really is? I mean, this is probably people just making these stories up about the disciples and about Jesus. Here's what you got to know about the Bible. 
it is the most historically reliable book to have ever been produced. There are copies upon copies upon copies all saying the same thing and all saying the same thing about Jesus. And if there is something different in one of the copies, it's usually like this. This sentence has the word the in it. And this sentence over here in this copy doesn't have the word the. But all of them, all throughout the New Testament, is screaming the same thing about Jesus over and over and over again. I, I don't know what else to say about it. I mean, the evidence to me is absolutely overwhelming. Could it be, I mean, and this is assuming that you have done all the research about Jesus and his claims, but could it be that you're suppressing what your hearts know to be true? Could it be? A lack of evidence will destroy your faith, but strong evidence will not produce it. We can have all the evidence in the world and still suppress what our hearts know to be true. And this is to a degree all of us are doing this because we're not living like it's real. We're not living like it's true. But there's another thing I want to look at. So the common thinking is that Jesus is a good teacher. Now, here's what you got to know. You don't want Jesus to be just a good teacher because if he is, you are doomed. Have you listened to some of the stuff he says? He says that if you are angry with someone, it's the same exact thing as murder. He's saying that, okay, anger is the kernel and murder is this kernel popped. It's popcorn popped. He's saying it's exactly the same thing. He's saying, given the right circumstances, if you're an angry person, given the right circumstances, you are very easily capable of murder. That's a heavy claim. You don't want him to be a teacher. You don't want that. Do you hear what he's saying? Or you say, well, he's just a good guy. He's a good man to follow. Well, essentially, you're doing the same thing to yourself again. Because do you see what his, the people who knew him the best were saying about him? They said he was perfect. They said he's without sin. You don't need a good man to follow. You need a rescuer. You don't need a good teacher. You need a savior. If you're like me, you're very aware of your own inability not to just live the way that Jesus is calling you to live, but just to live the way that you want to live. I mean, if I'm looking at my sin and I'm like, okay, there's, my, there's that sin. I don't want to do that sin, so I'm not going to do that sin. And I keep telling myself I'm not going to do the sin, and I keep doing it. In fact, the more I say I'm not going to do it, the more I seem to do it. One of my favorite ways to show this, and you can try this today, you hold out your hand, and you say to people, don't look at my hand. And you guys all knew it was coming, and look, some of you did that already. So you could try this today. Just don't tell them that you're doing it, but just hold out your hand and say, don't look at my hand. And that's the first thing that they're going to look at because we always do what we're told not to do. Paul, one of the greatest men to have ever lived. I mean, if I live half of the life Paul has lived, I will be so happy. Paul says the law, meaning this is how God would call me to live. This is the right way to live. As soon as the law says don't covet, 
He said in him it produced all kinds of covetedness. Like he wanted it more because the law said not to do it. It's not that the teaching is bad. Paul's saying the problem is not the teaching. The the problem is me. Paul's saying I'm bad. He can't keep the teaching. I can't keep it. You can't keep it. You don't want a teacher. You want a rescuer. You don't want a good man. You want a savior. I mean... Aren't you tired of pretending like you have it all together when you don't? And aren't you tired of suppressing the, the fact that you really, you're really not the person that you want to be? I think, just, just be honest for a second about it. And we don't just need a rescuer from our sin. We need a rescuer from our wounds, from our broken heart, and from death. In the deep chambers of your heart know this. We need a healer from our wounds. We need a substitute for our sin. And we need a rescuer to come and stand in our place so he will die so that we can live. And there's just one problem left. You don't have the key to the deep chamber of your heart. You have locked it up and you have no idea where the key is. But, there is still hope. So where it says that Jesus is the Christ and his hour has not yet come, here's what it means. It means that he is the great hope and he's the one who's come into the world to rescue you and he's the one standing there with the key in his hand for you wanting to unlock the deep chambers of your heart, what's deep in your heart that needs to come out. He wants to unlock it for you. And here's how it happens. This is what you've got to do. You've got to go to him in his great hour. Go to him in his great hour for him to unlock it. And, and, and before I tell you what that means, you ha- you have, there's, this is the way you go to him. You go to him with nothing. You go to him empty-handed. You bring nothing to the table and you go to him and you come asking him for mercy and you ask him for grace. And when you ask for grace, all of a sudden, your arms feel drunk with grace. They're heavy. And you look down and you see in your hand a hammer. And you realize You are in his great hour. And you're standing there and you look up with a hammer in your hand and you see the Son of God crucified, nailed to the cross. And you realize that it was your sin that killed him. It was your sin that sent him to the cross. And you hear that and you want to suppress it. You want it to go away. You don't want to think that you have done it. But here's what you've got to know. Let me be the one to tell you. It was a joy for him to go to that cross for you because by doing that, he was washing away all of your sin. He is going there out of this deep, deep love for you. It was a joy for him. He wanted to do it. The The cross forgives your sin. A teacher sends you to a cross. A savior goes to the cross in your place. And only when you realize that 
will the deep chambers of your heart be opened up. The nail of the cross is the key that was pierced through him in order to crack open your heart. And when it cracks open, all of your desires for God, the rescuing God King, come pouring out and you realize here he is. And you put all of your affection on him and you realize he's greater than anything that this world has to offer. And all of your love starts getting poured upon him. And when this happens, he heals the pain of your wounds. He heals your broken heart, and he shows you that death is nothing to be feared because it's only something that, he pa- that you pass through because he's already risen from it, and he's conquered it, and he's laid death in its own grave. He took the pain of the cross that was for you and made it his own. He took death on the cross that was coming to you and made it his own. And he risked loving you, knowing that you were going to break his heart over and over and over again. But he risked it anyways because it was only in the risk that you were going to be rescued. And it was a joy for him to risk it because he knew what it would make you to be. And he knew it would be that that would sweep you up into this grand Christian story and make you his forever. This is the Christ, the Son of God. Go to him and he will open up those deep chambers of your heart and all of your affections will be pouring upon him.